Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thank you for all you do to help promote it and get the word around. I'm recording this close to the end of the year 2023, and uh, our growth in subscriptions has been beautiful and very, very heartwarming. So um, if you have yet to do your part in subscribing to the show, um, why wait? Put me on pause and take care of it right now. That'll be terrific. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, and so here we are, close to the holiday of Christmas coming up, and uh, I unquestioningly wish you a joyful and uplifting Christmas. Not happy holidays, not season's greetings, but a joyful Christmas. I deplore the secularization of the culture, but you probably already know that about me. You know, they used to try to stigmatize Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians as dogmatic ignoramuses trying to force their stupid ideas down everyone else's throats. Now look at progressive, woke, university-educated cultural orphans and see what dogmatic ignoramuses they are as they try to force their stupid ideas that a woman who's had her breasts and uterus removed is actually a man and not a criminally mutilated woman, and vice versa, that a man with his Adam's apple and his manhood surgically removed is now a woman instead of what he really is, which is a badly mutilated man. Nothing that Christians ever believed or advocated for was ever even one hundredth as stupid, and never did Christians so dogmatically and oppressively force their ideas as do progressive, woke, university-educated cultural orphans force these ideas of theirs, making life miserable for all of us who resist. But then that's always been the fate of the resistance, right? Uh, those in France who stood up to the German occupation and constituted the resistance, um, they had rough lives, and uh, many of them lost their lives. So meanwhile, stores in America are fearful of wishing us Merry Christmas, and Christmas music that you hear is now not sacred but stupid. All the beautiful songs... The, the Christmas songs rooted in spiritual values. Yeah, hard to hear them nowadays. Right, what a shame. Anyways, one of the consequences of secularism, you know, people sometimes say, well, you know, fine, so the culture is becoming more secularized. How does it hurt you? If you want to be a believer, go ahead. Nobody's stopping you. Uh, you. You know, you want to believe in the Bible. Go ahead. Nobody's stopping you. But for everyone else, it's better to have a secularized culture because, after all, whose religion should we follow? You know, if you follow one religion, you'll offend the others. If you follow Buddhism, you'll offend the Muslims. If you follow Hinduism, you'll offend the Muslims. If you follow Christianity, you'll offend the Muslims. And, um, yeah. Needless to say, Judaism as well. So, uh, uh, but it's not true. The culture of America was Christian, and that was to everybody's benefit. Didn't hurt anybody. I used to like seeing Christmas decorations when they were around. I liked being on a street where people decorated their houses for Christmas. I liked that. I liked going to stores that decorated their their stores for Christmas. It was a special time of the year. I liked it. I liked that people were buying presents for one another. And because religion brings out more of a selflessness in people. All right? I mean this is well known. The literature on it is vast. 
that religious people are far more charitable than secular people. That's a reality, by the way. So it is a loss when a culture becomes secularized. And uh, one of the things that suffers when a culture becomes secularized is marriage and children. Marriages diminish and uh, the number of children being raised diminishes. Now, I don't have to spend time right now explaining why that is a calamity, but it is a calamity. Uh, it is difficult. By the way, uh, here's some uh, talking about difficult raising kids. Here is some devastating um, uh, stats, and that is that um, children have far better outcomes in terms of behavior and academics when they live in a neighborhood of married people with families as opposed to if they live in a single neighborhood, neighborhood occupied by singles mostly. Wouldn't you be surprised? I mean, isn't that an astounding reality? Just think about it. It's amazing. Your children, regardless of whether you're married or single, your children will do better if most of the people around you are married and raising families. Your children will do better. And so the fact that secularism is on the rise means that there are fewer marriages and it means there are fewer families being formed, fewer children being born. It's a huge problem uh, economically and financially. It's a, it's a prom problem for the criminal justice system. It's a problem culturally and socially. It's a huge problem. So uh, secularism is not to be taken lightly, I promise you. One of the areas, as I said, is marriage. And uh, here is an ask the rabbi question that came through to us. And um, I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, I'm going to just read it to you just as we got it, okay? Dear Rabbi and Susan, my husband has started being annoyingly controlling over one of my work friendships. Yes, okay, it is with a man, and I think I know what you will say, but it is entirely platonic. We talk mostly about work-related matters when we go out for lunch together, though also about the news and occasionally other things like our interests and our families. We have lunch together once or twice a week on average, and my husband does not understand that it is just because neither of us like lunching alone. My husband is acting very hurt about this, and I've told him how inappropriate that is. I wouldn't be writing to you were it not that some of the other girls that I'm friendly with at work that I've told about this side with my husband. I think part of it is jealousy that this guy, he is a senior manager, chooses to lunch with me. These girls are trying to tell me that I am having an affair, an emotional affair, and that my husband is right to be unhappy about it. But the truth is that an emotional affair is just a psychobabble term. I am not having any affair, nor do I want an affair, neither does this guy. It's just a harmless work thing. Please help me explain this to my husband. And this is from Amy. So um, we did explain it to Amy, uh, not to her husband, we explained it to her because she's the one who wrote and uh, she was good enough to follow up with some of our suggestions and good enough to get back to us with uh, answers to two of the questions we raised. So um, here are the answers, or here is the answer. Point number one, Amy. Platonic friendships between men and women between the ages of 15 and 70 are very similar to unicorns. They are pretty to imagine, but they're otherwise non-existent. That's right. Platonic friendships between men and women between the ages of 15 and 70, pretty much non-existent. Doesn't mean you don't think it is, but you're wrong. Point number two. It may have been platonic for you, but it was not for him. You may not have wanted an affair, but he did. What is more, you say you didn't want an affair, and that is true. You really believe that, but it isn't true. Excuse me, but it is true until it isn't. That is why there is a very common phrase 
that we hear from couples all the time who are trying to rebuild their marriage after betrayal. The phrase we hear is, one thing led to another. And when we speak to the couples engaged in trying to build, rebuild a shattered marriage, and we say, so did you go into this in order to have an affair? And the women always say, no, of course not. One thing led to another. (laughs) Yeah, we hear that all the time. Absolutely. With the guys, it's a little bit less sure. More more than one guy, a lot of them, in fact, have in response to our question of like, is this, did you start going into this with her with the intention of it becoming a, an extramarital affair? And the guy doesn't say no so quickly. And very often he says, well, you know, I guess I was hoping. That's what they say. And so, um, so yes, uh, I don't doubt that Amy thought it was platonic, but um, and and it probably was at the time for her. I don't believe it was for the guy, and we told her that, and I'll tell you in a moment what we advised her to do. Uh, point number three, um, I, without knowing you personally or knowing the people involved, I'm going to make a prediction, Amy, and that is that this guy you lunch with makes more money than your husband. I'm not saying your husband wouldn't have been troubled if it was a lower ranking guy financially, but this way it is devastating. Point number four, how would you, Amy, feel if it was reversed and your husband was meeting with a younger and prettier woman at work just for lunch? They didn't, they absolutely didn't touch each other. They didn't even shake hands. They didn't hug nothing. They just enjoyed being together. Yes, an emotional affair is a real thing. And um, in this case, it's not psychobabble, it's real. And uh, we recommended that Amy goes ahead and tries to uh, talk to the guy. And, uh, and she should say to him, uh, how would you feel about escalating our relationship to the physical? And um, please tell us what he said. Well, she did and she did. And uh, she said to the guy, uh, how would you feel about escalating our relationship to the physical? And he blinked a time or two and swallowed once and said, uh, well, y- yes, if you'd like to, absolutely, I'd love to. <laughs> she was shocked out of her mind. She came back and to us and told us exactly how that had gone down. She was absolutely astounded. Uh, she could not believe that he looked at her that way. Couldn't believe it. He was. She was absolutely sure that it was just a friend. That's all. And uh, we explained to her that that doesn't exist with males between fifteen and seventy. Uh, there is no such thing as just a woman. We see every woman. Now, we may suppress it in the interests of our civilization and the fact that uh, we want to get away from the uh, primitive image of of a man who can't restrain his sexuality and who can't see women as people instead of sexual objects. And so we're frightened to concede that point. But bottom line, um, overwhelmingly, almost every man listening to my voice right now will nod internally to himself with a smile and say, absolutely, that's correct. So Amy was shocked that her lunchtime companion uh, looked at her as a an attractive woman for him. She didn't see it that way, but um, he certainly did. So she she reported back to us how that went down, and she very wisely said to him, well, in that case, we have to terminate our lunches. We can't do this anymore. And he, 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 he just didn't get it. He said, well, why do you ask? Well, because she needed to know. So, uh, so that all, I think, ended reasonably happily. And she also confirmed for me that uh, he, this guy was financially uh, more significant than her husband was. So uh, all of that makes sense. And, and, and we, uh, we understood it. And more importantly, so did Amy. Now, uh, something that uh, we could not say to Amy in our response to her, because it really was something that we would want to say to Amy's husband, 
but uh, he didn't write to us, she did, so we couldn't say it, but I'm going to tell you, and that is that uh, if I could speak to Amy's husband, and who knows, maybe he's listening, uh, I would say to him, your only mistake was to, quoting your wife's letter, you being annoyingly controlling, that means, I think, that um, you were by far and away not nearly firm enough. I understand totally your reluctance to appear primitive and to uh, fulfill all the old stereotypes of jealous males. And I understand that you would sort of feel it humiliating to, to be that way. And, um, and so you probably let this go for a long time, even though you knew she was having regular lunches once or twice a week with this guy, you probably let it go on for a while before you even said something. And then you probably sounded, because you had had weeks and weeks and weeks of being irritated by this, you probably didn't realize how irritating and irritated you sounded, when instead you should have sounded not at all irritated, but very much more firm than you did, to say that you weren't happy about it. That's not the way this should go. Um, the The way it should go is, as your husband, I absolutely forbid you to have these lunches. It's stopping right now. Now, uh, your wife, Amy, might uh, well throw a fit at hearing words like that. A spirited woman probably would. You know, who, who, who are you? How dare you um, tell me what I may and may not do? And uh, at which point he should have said, look, I don't think you understand. This is a marriage-defining moment. I am telling you that our marriage is contingent on this. You got to stop this right now. And I'm perfectly happy. In fact, I want to explain to you exactly why I'm so firm about this. You may not have any interaction with this guy when there's no one else around, not at lunch, not in an elevator, nowhere, only in meetings where other people are present for business purposes. That's all. And that's really uh, what Amy's husband should have said to her. Um, there's a possibility that uh, on a deep level, Amy would have felt really good too. I mean, on one hand, there's a part of her says, you know, how dare you, don't tell me what to do. I think there's another part of her that probably said, wow, he really cares. That's, that's, that's something, that's terrific. And uh, for those of you who are more interested in this than uh, I'm going to give it credit for in, in today's show, and I think you probably already begin to have a little bit of a sense of why the title of the show was a, um, a marriage being um, sharing a bed and a bank account. But um, if you are interested, what I strongly recommend that you do is read Tolstoy is a Russian novelist, Tolstoy. He wrote a wonderful book called Anna Karenina. And um, basically, and again, not to condense hundreds and hundreds of pages into 30 seconds, but um, uh, the, the book is showing us that Alexei Karenin, Anna's husband, could have saved his marriage. He absolutely could. His mistake was doing exactly what Amy's husband did which was sort of be mildly unhappy about it and just coming across as petty and jealous instead of coming across as the leader of the marriage, as the husband of the marriage. And, um, and that's, that's kind of what happens because uh, in, instead, of, instead of being firm with her, uh, Karenin sort of sees that his wife is acting inappropriately with Vronsky and um, he's shocked because they've had a good marriage. And, um, and he's frightened and bothered. And he even argues to himself, you know, if he should do what I just recommended for Amy's husband, if he should stand up and say to her, this is stopping right now. You may not see this man anymore. His name was Vronsky, uh, a dashing army officer who uh, was paying considerable attention to... to uh, Anna with every intention of starting an affair. And, um, and so um, uh, what, what happened is that 
he he feels how how can he speak to his wife so firmly she's beyond reproach she's never till now given him reason to to be bothered and to be and in any event he looks at jealousy as a negative trait you know what sort of what sort of man is jealous i mean he comes across as petty and jealous. that's not good and he also would feel humiliated at doing that and so he hesitates out of fear of insulting her and making her angry and he, so he doesn't do that. He makes it clear he's not happy, but he doesn't do much more than that. And, um, and we know that earlier on, there was a time when uh, Anna had told him, you know, that, that she's having attention paid to her like this. And she sort of reported it almost jokingly. And, and, um, and, and he, Karenin, made light of it saying, hey, you know what, This you, you have to expect this. You know, you meet people at the opera and the ballet or at the theater and there's flirting and this is all just part of social interaction. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. That's what he said. She was probably basically on a subconscious level, perhaps, saying to him, hey, you know, tell me what to do here. Um, uh, stop this. This is not a good thing. I can't stop it myself, but you need to help me stop it. Because Anna did not want to destroy her marriage, but she was feeling seduced and lured into this relationship, and Vronsky was exploiting that to the full. And so, um, um, and so, you know, she's listening to how he treated it, saying, you know, this is what happens with people she takes that as sort of almost a permission to go ahead. And even when um, Karenin finally decides, you know what, this can't carry on, he's got to do something, he still is not sufficiently strong and wise, and he doesn't come across correctly in how to get through to her heart and tell her this has to stop. And so... Uh, um, you know, he, he sort of talks about, you know, listen, uh, this is going to make a bad impression. People see you hanging out with Vronsky. I know you're not doing anything, you know, and she probably blushes at that. Uh, but um, but it's not good. It's not good for uh, our children and it's not good for, for anybody to uh, to see this going on. You really got to stop it. And she hears that. And she minimizes them. She says, so it, it's not a big deal. He just cares about how it looks to others. So if I make sure that nobody sees anything, well, that's that's all. Um, and so although although Karenin does speak of his love for her, uh, that's sort of secondary to um, the way he's talking about what will people say and it'll not be good for your son and so on and so forth. So um, she she concludes as part of the the way she sort of rationalizes things to herself. She says, my husband doesn't know what love is really all about, but Vronsky, this army officer, he gets it. And so that's how it goes. And, um, and it's important to understand this aspect of marriage. I, I don't think Amy's husband is the first husband um, this year to uh, make this mistake of not being um, not being clear to his wife that the relationship is exclusive and that yes there are emotional affairs as well as physical affairs and emotional affairs very often lead to physical affairs but even if they don't it's a problem because the husband and wife are supposed to be one unit and you see here's what's so important to understand it's it's quite remarkable if you think about it that two people, a man and a woman, who maybe six months ago didn't even know each other, are now living together in the most intimate way possible, building a future together, looking ahead to a life spent together. And these are people who, who didn't even know each other up till a few months ago. Now, I know that today it's not that common. Uh, people date for years and then they get engaged, and they stay engaged for years, and then they eventually get married. Well, that's not uh, anything that your rabbi recommends at all. 
uh, and it's in in religious circles, both Jewish and Christian, it's not at all uncommon for people to get married within six months of the time they get to know each other in the first place. As a matter of fact, Susan Lappin, hello. Hi. Did we get married within six months after we first met? I think we did. She's looking at her fingers. Um, first met... Um, it was seven months first dated it was four months it was seven months from when we first saw each other but didn't have anything to do with each other but we got married four months after our first date anyway my point is that this is really amazing because think about business partnerships they usually involve uh, substantial contracts partnership agreements and and even so you know it's very often that partners disagree and sometimes even go to court. And then they have to resort to the the wording of the contract and the intent of the contract in order to, to make the relationship function on some level at least. And yet a man and a woman become life partners with very little in the way of a contract and off they go. How do, how's that supposed to work? It's remarkable. And the answer is that marriage is a covenant, both in churches and synagogues. uh, Weddings use the wording, um, John and Jane have entered into the holy covenant of marriage. That's a very common phrase. What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Mainly that a covenant involves a third party. A contract is between John and Jane. A covenant is between John, Jane, and God. That's what a covenant actually means. And this is one of the reasons that the most reliable correlation for marriages, when marriages happen and when they don't, is the religiosity of the culture in which the couple live. If they live in a secular culture, marriage is uh, much rarer. If they live in a religious culture, marriages happen. So that's one of the reasons that the correlation is absolutely reliable, that in religious communities, there are many, many more marriages than in secular communities. In religious communities, there are many more babies born than in secular community. Uh, and there's a, a, a caution there. But, uh, but bottom, bottom line, we got to understand that uh, marriage is essentially a religious function. Yes, I know people today get married at the magistrate's office or at the clerk of the city hall, but um, it's a distortion of the reality. It is essentially a religious undertaking because it relies so much on faith. And the point is that the faith itself strengthens it. It's as if the faith becomes self-fulfilling. And even in a secular marriage, you, you see that playing out by, oh, we love each other. We're in love. And that's what makes them go ahead. Now, uh, until recent times, it was also lust. And, um, and so that pulled them towards marriage as well. Today, uh, for obvious and sad reasons, less so. But it's still um, a case of sort of feeling impelled to be permanent right? Because in exactly the same way that a man wants exclusivity, even uh, Anna's husband, Mr. Karenin, wanted exclusivity entirely, not just physically, but emotionally as well, right? Very much so. Uh, It also is a, a desire for exclusivity on, on an ongoing basis, Now, admittedly, yes, there are men who have been sufficiently damaged by the culture and by their own behavior that they are perfectly willing to have a one-night stand with a woman and um, never call her again. And she's brokenhearted and upset because she realizes that something really meaningful and profound has happened, namely physical intimacy. And she can't understand that to him it's unimportant. And that has happened because, unfortunately, um, our behavior uh, regulates our beliefs. And the more we do a certain thing, the more okay that certain thing begins to seem to us. 
And so, yes, there are men that way. But normal, it may be average. That behavior may be average, but it's not normal. Normal behavior is very different. Normal behavior is that a man feels a deep and profound and almost overwhelming sense of possessiveness towards the woman he is together with. So much so that there's all kinds of silliness out there. If you've ever heard of the bro code, right? This is young men um, have a code in which it's accepted. You don't date the girl that your buddy has just broken up with. And you don't even ask him if it's okay until a, a good certain period of time has elapsed. It's understood why, because you're violating this idea that he doesn't want to think of her with you. Even though they've broken up, he still felt a profound sense of permanent possessiveness. And it's hard to lose that. That's why we have a very formal divorce ceremony to end a marriage, because it's very difficult to terminate this very natural, inbuilt, hard-wired feeling that we are together now for always. That's what the act of physical intimacy brings about. And so um, marriage is a very natural consequence a very natural it's hey i want this to be forever i you are only mine from now onwards he says to her and her heart thrills in ecstasy hearing those words because that's exactly what she wants as well see that that's how it works and uh, this thing called marriage really really good for kids um, kids are safer physically and spiritually, educationally, in every possible way. Kids do better when they're living with their natural married mother and father. And as I said, so powerful is this dynamic that even if the friends your kids hang out with are not uh, living with m married parents, your child suffers from that. It's not a good thing. You know, you, you, ideally, you want your children to hang out with kids who themselves are also living with their natural married parents. And that's, that's how big and important this is, let alone afterwards for family formation and for culture and for economics. There are all kinds of huge reasons. But um, all of this, whether you like it or not, is linked to faith. It's linked to God it's linked to religion, whether you like it or not. Now, I'm not saying if you're not religious, you can't be married or have a good marriage or have a happy marriage. The statistics, however, are that if you are religious and you marry a religious woman, uh, number one, you're more likely to get married. Number two, you're more likely to stay married. And, you know, again, people don't like hearing this stuff. So when you hear about um, problems with kids, they speak in terms of poverty statistics, they speak in terms of crime, and they speak in terms of governmental action and child care. But nobody says the one most important factor concerning the welfare of kids, and that is marriage of their parents. Because people feel it's judgmental. We're pointing fingers at people who have children or who are not married, or we have point fingers at people who have children and they're divorced. Uh, and yeah, these are real problems. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry you're suffering from it. I'm sorry you are divorced. I, I had this situation recently where uh, I was at an event uh, with a, a lovely young woman who unfortunately is divorced, and uh, she, um, she, she was there with a couple of her kids. And um, somebody asked me questions about divorce, and I was talking extensively about some of these things I'm, I'm telling you now about the uh, quality of, you know, quality of life, neighborhood, society, culture, how much depends on marriage and how problematic divorce is. And I went up to her office and I said, you know, I, I hope you don't mind. Uh, and, you know, she was fine. But it's, it's, it is hard. And... Um, and, and yes, it's, it's painful. We, you know, we've all made mistakes in our lives, and to be reminded of them is, is very, very painful. But as you well know, I can't massage you with warm butter. I have to tell you how the world really works. And sometimes it's painful to listen. And you know what? Sometimes it's even painful for me to say. But uh, I have to 
and you need to hear it. And so if marriage is very much a function of faith, then it might be interesting to hear what the attitude towards marriage is on the part of those who are on the opposite end of the spectrum from faith. There would be people like Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, and his uh, good students, uh, people like Marx and Engels, uh, communists, socialists, progressives. Go back to the Communist Manifesto. The nuclear family, meaning mother and father, husband and wife, has to be obliterated. And uh, they don't use more uh, gentle nomenclature than I do. They are very firm and very solid on this, that marriage must be, yeah, right. Because if you're trying to design a God-free society called communism, then obviously you are going to have the opposite attitude towards marriage than is held by a God-centric society. So not surprisingly, you are going to be uh, stringently and vigorously hostile to marriage, and sure enough, they are. What else are they vigorously hostile and upset about? Uh, private property, private property, ownership of property, money. That's what they're upset about. And sure enough, uh, Marx and Engels are emphatic about this, that private property and the nuclear family have to be demolished. Got to get rid of them, because only that way will we be able to build a brand new society that the world has never yet seen, but in which there will be true freedom and equality for etc., etc. You've heard it all. But um, And you get it from university professors today. You get it from woke progressives. You get it from ardent, dyed-in-the-wool communists. Anybody who is committed to a God-free view of reality is going to be hostile to marriage and family, and uh, they are going to be hostile to private property ownership of things. So, um, you know, I've just finished celebrating the holiday of Hanukkah, and uh, interestingly enough, in ancient Jewish wisdom, uh, the the entire section dealing with the regulations and rules of Hanukkah begins with the words that, um, uh, you know, uh, 2,200 years ago, the Greeks were in control of the Middle East, and uh, they ruled over the Jews of uh, Judea and Palestine, and they assault. Now, here's what's interesting. You know, you would think, if you if you know even the most basic things about Hanukkah, you might say, well, here's the beginning of the most important listing of structures, what Hanukkah is all about and what it means and what you're supposed to do. Wouldn't you have thought that, well, you know, 2,200 years ago, the Greeks uh, violated the temple in Jerusalem and they... Uh, destroyed the sanctity of the oil and there wasn't any oil left except a tiny little bit and it lasted for eight days yeah but that's not what the um, sage Maimonides is writing he says no the problem is the Greeks came into Judea and they seized our money and our women and what does that mean well, they they helped themselves. They uh, they just took a whole lot of money under the guise of taxation without limit, because they didn't agree with the idea of private property. Uh, the government will give you what you need, but you've got to hand over everything. And how? What does it mean? They seized our women, and the answer is it means that they practiced something called prima nocta. The first night in, uh, in I think that's Latin, in French it's called le droit de seigneur, meaning the right of the lead nobleman, the governor, the head, the head politico of the, of the region um, gets to sleep with every bride on her first night. And then after that, she goes to her husband. And as you can imagine, because of what we were just discussing earlier, the exclusivity idea, uh, the idea of how very hard it is to repair a marriage when a wife has slept with somebody else during the course of the marriage. Uh, it's a huge problem, and you can pretend to be as sophisticated as you like, and you can pretend to overcome your primitive uh, jealousies, but it's not going to go easily. And so, as you can imagine, 
uh, when the Greeks practiced prima nocta against the Jews of Palestine 2,200 years ago, uh, as you can imagine, it drove a, uh, a dagger into the heart of marriage. Very difficult for marriages to function normally after that. And that is what drove the Maccabees to pick up arms. Tiny little band of guerrillas picks up, pick up arms and they make war against the mighty Greek Empire and, and win, at least for a short period. So, uh, yeah, that's what it was about. Money and marriage. That's what it is. And so the title of today's show, yeah, uh, sharing a bed and a bank account, because both are very connected. Um, you remember that wonderful Mel Gibson movie called Braveheart? And you'll remember uh, evil King Edward gallops into a village to interrupt a wedding celebration. And he yells out from on top of his horse, I've come to claim the right of Prima Nocta. As lord of these lands, I will bless this marriage by taking the bride into my bed on the first night of her union. And of course, the groom goes nuts and he has to be restrained by Edward's um, bullies. And then King Edward, as he r starts to ride off with the girl, says to the villagers, it is my noble right. Okay, And again, when you think about it, if you take away the godliness, if you take away the sanctity, um, and, and if... Uh, if sex and physical intimacy are just a spinal spasm and there's nothing to it really and that in in reality um, women and men can just uh, have casual sexual relationships and everything's going to be just fine um, it turns out not to be the case for women even more than for men and there are reasons for that but um, that is what we're actually looking at right now, the bed and the bank account. And of course, the bed is what produces uh, marriage, what produces family, of course, um, because it produces children and then there are other children and there are siblings and uncles and aunts and eventually cousins. And so when everyone sits around the Thanksgiving table and hopefully the elderly couple with twinkling eyes looking around with pride and joy at their children and their grandchildren uh, and everybody you know is is happy and 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 feeling the warm glow that spontaneously surges up in a family gathering of that kind and nobody sort of necessarily actually thinks about it but the reality is that the only reason that you are there and the only reason you're there with your siblings and your cousins and your uncles and your aunts is because many, many, many years ago, grandpa and grandma found ecstasy in one another's arms. That's why we're there. Beds produce family, as using it as a euphemistic metaphor. So that that's what happens. And um, and the money, well, something that the marriage counselors, almost everybody agree, that by far the overwhelming majority of marital problems revolve around sex and money. And usually combined usually the, 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 those two together. Um, we know, for instance, and um, <clears throat> uh, this was, well, I'll just tell you, uh, this was a, a study produced by Washington University in St. Louis, and it was released in February 2013. And the title of the study is Men Married to Women with Higher Incomes More Likely to Use Erectile Dysfunction Medication. Right, that's the academic language of the um, uh, of of the university system, but um, it's it's been reported many times. It's been duplicated. You know, you might you might wonder how on earth do they know? And the answer is because in the United States, medical information is vast. I mean, we really really know a lot about the medical. Now, again, there's supposed to be privacy, so. 
the, what they do is they make it very hard to, other than for your doctor, the, the data is available to researchers, but the identity of the people involved should be kept completely private, and, and that's the way the system is meant to work. I hope it does. But <clears throat> but this information was not hard. They, the researchers have explained how they dug it up, and it's, it's been replicated. It's absolutely correct, and something we've known for a long time, because whenever neighborhoods have suffered regional economic stress— uh, when much industry left the northeast of the United States, which used to be, you know, the, the the bedrock of American manufacturing, or when coal and steel left the Pittsburgh area, or when aspects, parts of furniture manufacturing left parts of the southeast, um, we know from the medical information that there's always a surge of male sexual dysfunction. Not female, because... Money is very much tied to the masculine identity of a man. Now, I'm not saying it's not hard when a woman suffers financial stress. It's terrible. Uh, when, when women uh, endure money shortage, it's very, very hard. But it doesn't cut at the core of their femininity. If anything, it actually does something the reverse. Another topic. But uh, for men, we know that that's the reality, that when men experience difficulty bringing home the bacon, as it were, when men have trouble uh, creating the, uh, the, the finances, they suffer in a very basic, fundamental, masculine way. And it's terrible. But uh, there it is. It's just a reality. And how about in the other direction? Uh, well, um, here, again, research done, and this was done in several countries. Uh, I found it done in Denmark, China, and the United States. It was around about uh, 2007, 2008. And I'm, I'm just going to read you the headlines from two British newspapers. Uh, why British? Because I was giving a speech for a British uh, organization recently, and I happen to um, want to quote this, but I thought I'd use British newspapers for it. So I just happened to have it on my desk in front of me. And this is the Telegraph, uh, the British Telegraph, and their headline wasn't on page one, but the headline in the paper read, women get more pleasure in bed from wealthy men. Okay, there, there it is. That was January 19th, 2009. And the famous Times, the, the, the London Times, the, the Dowager of Fleet Street, the, 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 the prominent paper, I'm sure it would never have had a headline like this 50 years ago, but today everything has changed and not for the better. And so I'm able to quote the headline of the Times. They scooped the telegraph by one day. Theirs was January 18th, 2009. And their headline is, Why Women Have Better Sex with Rich Men. Just there it is, just just like that. Uh, but again, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. We also know that not only do men whose wives out earn them suffer a uh, a need for a certain well-known blue tablet, but also we know that such marriages. Um, have a very low probability of long-term success. Uh, we know that marriages in which there's a house husband are doomed. Now, look, I mean, I know people who've got married and they told me, well, you know, I mean, it makes sense because she earns much more than I do. So I'm going to be the house husband. I'm going to be the stay-at-home dad and, and she's going to support us. Um, for second marriages, by the way, that sometimes works out okay. But for first marriages... Um, it's it's very rare. You know, you wish them well. You know, God bless you. I hope everything goes well. Wish you congratulations and much happiness. But in my heart, I'm, I know it's only going to be a matter of a couple of years uh, before it's over. And what is the mechanism? Well, there's several interesting mechanisms, but one of the most obvious I've already spoken to you about. Remember, I, I read to you Amy's letter, and Amy was attracted to, now, I know she said it's just, uh, it's just uh, um, platonic, but at the same time, I also 
read the giveaway in a letter that the other girls are jealous that this guy chose to have lunch with her. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Uh, makes perfect sense. I get it. And um, and so what happens is women with house husbands, um, they don't look up to their husbands on a subconscious level. And they hate themselves for this because they think they're they're not shallow. They're not superficial. They see much more in their husband than just the fact that he makes money. And the fact that he's now at home looking after the kids and running the house. That's wonderful. They love that, but they don't. And uh, most women do not love it, but most women deep down end up with a lack of respect for the man. One of the mechanisms, he feels that, and no man feels attracted in a male-female type of way to a woman who has contempt for him. He can't deal with it. There is no seductiveness. There is no allure. Uh, there is no eroticism there at all. He needs, we all do, we guys need to be looked up to in order to function at our masculine best. And uh, women, uh, well, what happens is she's at work and she's, who's she running into at work? <laughs> she's running into uh, high achieving guys. They're at work. They're not home. They're at work. And she is attracted and they are attracted. And uh, invariably the invariable or the inevitable happens and uh, that ends that kind of marriage. So um, in the situation where um, uh, there are financial, where, where the man is not, does not have the bank account, don't be surprised that the bed suffers and the marriage is doomed. And conversely, According to the Telegraph and the Times, or according to the studies they quote from Denmark and China and the United States, that um, uh, women do feel um, more joy being together with affluent men. Now, does this, uh, does this make women shallow? Does this make women superficial? Does this make women gold diggers? Or from the point of view of many men who've said to me, I just want to know that she loves me for me, not my money. I've, you know, I've heard guys say that to me oh, countless times. And, um, and I've heard women, when I suggest a, a possible match, I suggest to a woman that there's a guy I'd like to give her number to. And I, 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 I talk to her. One of the first things, it's so, it's so cute to watch. She, in a conversation, she's trying to find out what his finances are and she knows that if she actually says that it makes her look terrible at least she believes that in, in reality it makes her look smart and wise and knowledgeable and um, and and caring about her future it's not at all a problem but you know she, she um, she's trying to find out because it's really important to her to know and this gets dismissed as, oh, it's just hypergamy, you know, women want higher earning men. No, there's something far more profound going on here in exactly the same way that uh, women want to be with men who are taller than they are, right? There are exceptions to that, obviously, uh, but that's what women, how do I know this? Because again, medical information in America uh, is very solid because every time you go to the doctor, they weigh you and they measure your height. And so um, we know, we know what the uh, statistics are about men and women in height. And we know that the average height of men is about 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, we know the average height of women is about 5'4", five, 5'3", five, somewhere around about there, 5'5", five, five maybe. Um, and so you say, well, the average height of men is five inches more than the average height of women. So obviously, uh, in couples, you'll expect to see many more couples where the man is taller than the woman. But don't forget, both for men's heights and for women's heights, there is something called a bell curve, the statistical distribution. And it's true that there are short women at five and five, two and five, three. In the middle, women are five, four. And then over at the other end, you got Serena Williams, the tennis player, and Michelle Obama, the former first lady, who's six foot. So yes, you do have a number of very tall women, a number of very short women. You also have a number of very short men, very tall men. Um, but what if we just went statistically 
and randomly matched all the men and women in America because we know their heights and we just let a computer match them. Uh, and then we looked at the couples. We would find that the men are taller than the women in about 60% of the cases. But from your own experience, just looking at couples you see on the street and yet you know and you meet, you know that the actual figures are closer to 90%. How's that possible? Well, it's possible because only for three possibilities. Possibility one, men seek shorter women. Two, women seek taller men. Three, both. Those are the only possibilities that explain it. And uh, sure enough, women do want to look up to their man, metaphorically and literally as well, apparently. So, uh, and one of the ways they look up to men is if he's taller. Another way they look up to him is if he is financially uh, uh, successful. Now, that's not all there is. Women can look up to a man and do look up to a man as well for character attributes of integrity and kindness and so on and so forth. But here's the important thing, that very few indicators tell you more about a man than his relationship with money. And so when a woman wants to know what the financial status of a guy is before she goes out with him, that's not because she wants to spend his money. It's because somehow on a very deep level, she understands that uh, money is made when a lot of people know you, like you, and trust you. And so she, she knows intuitively that if a guy has made money, and by the way, a lot of women are very uneasy with inherited money for good reason, because it doesn't tell you the same thing. But if a man has made some money, it says to the woman, hey, there's, you know what, there are a bunch of other people who know him and like him and trust him. That's a good recommendation for me to go out with him. You know, it doesn't matter whether you consult economists or financiers or deans of business schools or a director of the International Monetary Fund. If you ask people like that, what's money? You'll always get pretty much the same answer. It'll go something like this. Money is a government-authorized circulating medium of exchange that allows us to count and store value. And, and that's pretty good. There's nothing much untrue about that definition, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. If you really want an, a better understanding of money, you should get hold of a book written by William James, a great American psychologist in 1890, over 100 years old. The book's called The Principles of Psychology. And in chapter 10, William James, who has a much more correct understanding of the human soul than, shall we say, Uncle Sigmund Freud. Um, William James is not trying to define money, but he's helping us understand the, the, the range of its impact on our lives. So let me read out of William James' book, Principles of Psychology. You'll love this. In, <coughs> pardon me. In its widest possible sense, however, a man's self is the sum total of all that he can call his, not only his body and his mental powers, but his clothes and his house, his wife and children, his ancestors and friends, his reputation and his work, his land and property and his horses and his yacht and his bank account. All these things give him the same emotions. If they wax and prosper, he feels triumphant. If they dwindle and die away, he feels cast down, not necessarily in the same degree for each thing, but in much the same way for all. My dear happy warriors, that is so profound. It's so magnificent. He's exactly right. And so, yes, that does tell us a whole lot about a man. And when a woman wants to know what a man's financial relationships are before she goes out with him, before she considers him as a serious potential 
marriage partner, she's 100% correct. So just to clarify, yes, there absolutely are many things that a woman can admire in a potential husband. There are many things that a woman can admire in a man she is looking at. Um, you know, kindness, sense of humor, um, uh, integrity and uprightness. All of those things are, are lovely. And um, if he's part of a, a, a crowd of men that look up to him, and this is one of the reasons men in uniform are attractive, because if he's a fireman, there's a an indication that he's part of a bunch of guys who know him and like him and trust him. And, and that says to him, and that's good. That's why they seem attractive. That makes sense. Um, but in general, all of those things are in addition to his financial relationships, in addition, right? Because that's fundamental. His masculinity, which, you know, at the heart we're talking about bed and bank account. Those the two things do go together. At the heart, an aspect of his masculine attraction is precisely the fact that he can provide financially. That's really important. Now, if in addition to that, he's also got a sense of humor and he's good looking, he's cute. And in addition to that, he's got a lot of impressive guy friends that he hangs out with. And in addition to that, he's got a sense of humor and he's got integrity, all of those things. Boy, bonanza, you hit the jackpot. But um, it's problematic if those things are going to have to take the place of the fundamental of finances. And uh, I, I hope that's clear, Happy Warriors, and, and I hope you are going to be able to help people, not only yourselves, but but help other people as well, either by helping people who need to know to hear this show uh, or teaching it to them yourselves. I mean, look, I've, I've said before that uh, that what a man does between 13 and 23, really important. So much so that a little game I sometimes play at personal appearances is um, I will ask people to come up to me afterwards, guys, not women, and uh, tell me how you spent roughly, you know, a quick summary of how you spent the 10 years from your bar mitzvah to the age of 23. And I will now tell you a whole lot about your current life. Since we never met till this moment, how do I know? Because so much of your current life depends on what you did between the ages of 13 and 23. Really important. And and so, yeah, this stuff, this stuff is difficult and painful, especially for guys, because, uh, you know, what, what men often say to me when I teach this sort of stuff is, you know, where were you when I needed to hear this when I was 18 years old? And that's problematic. And I, I really, I really do understand and I empathize. It is, it is hard, but I can't massage you with warm butter. You know that. I have to tell you how the world really works. And, uh, and there is no case to speak of, of financial stress today that doesn't have its roots in a mistake that was made yesterday. The past, you, we can't relive it. We can only make the best of the present. Play the hands we're dealt, right? Excepting we were not dealt these hands by chance. We may have been poorly guided by parents and teachers. Maybe they tried to guide us and we didn't listen. But um, how we spent those years from 13 to 23 has a lot to do with the circumstances we face and deal with today. Not inevitably, uh, there are many fortunate guys who escape um, the negativity of the early years and have done fantastically well. There are many people like that. Um, but, uh, and then the other way as well, you know, there are people who had wonderful 13 to 23 and then things went horribly bad. That has also happened. Uh, Sometimes uh, there have been uh, drugs or alcohol involved, whatever it is, different things. But um, bottom line, yes, and the, the importance in marriage of bed and bank account. 
and um, and generally speaking, yeah, it is a you know we're not roommates, we're married, so our resources are ours, and uh, and if I am going to work every day and my wife is keeping me free of worry about our children there's they're not being taken care of by a government child care worker and uh, and they're not being subjected to uh, to bad influences at uh, the local government indoctrination center uh, namely a public school and she's doing all these things then um, she is fully entitled and right to speak about our money not his money it's our money because i couldn't possibly succeed if it wasn't for her we're partners that's how the system works so uh, now you would understand why our newest book is called the holistic you integrating your family and your finances your faith and your friendships and your fitness because these are all part of interrelated components of a complex system called your life and we've been speaking about the family finance part of it the bed in the bank account uh, in this particular show but you get the idea and uh, and if you haven't yet read the holistic you then i want to ask that you do so because it is going to have a profound impact on how you deal with your physical health your social life, your friendships, your finances, your marital life, um, your faith life, all of these things do tie together in shockingly unexpected ways. And understanding that allows you to deploy these principles most effectively in every area of your life. So uh, there it is, the holistic you waiting for you at your local bookseller. So, uh, that is ladies and gentlemen as far as i think we should take it although there's so much more to go on this topic i mean wouldn't you wouldn't you be interested to hear why it is and this would i would address primarily to young single guys who are waiting to find the one they're waiting to find oh the one soulmate who is destined to them wouldn't it be interesting to talk about why such a guy if he's a good man if he's a solid man if he's a man who's got his five F's together, a man like that could marry any one of 20 women. And a few years down the road, they're all going to make terrific wives. He's going to have a wonderful life. It doesn't matter. Very little hinges on the precise choice of exactly the one person. But for that to be true, you've got to be a real man. More on that in another show coming up soon but for this show happy warriors thanks for being part of us and uh, as always i'd love to hear your comments on the happy warriors website which means if you're not a happy warrior yet join our community we'd love that we happy and uh, let me know your reaction to this particular show and um, things you might like to either argue probe find out more information on whatever happy to always oblige always love interacting with you at the we happy warriors website so uh, thanks for being with us and thanks for all you do for the show thanks for getting the word around and getting lots and lots and lots of new listeners i appreciate that and i wish you a joyful and uplifting christmas as we move ahead towards 2024 the new year wishing you a week of growth onwards and upwards with your family and your finances, your faith, your fitness, and your friendships. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.